Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 73 movies, one cage. Today, we will take a shortcut with 1989's Time to Kill. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and we mentioned it last time, why we, we usually go from, it's usually two fans, 72 movies, one cage. All of a sudden, we're up to 73, and you might be asking yourself, hey, what happened? Well, we have really big news to share with you. So what uh, actually did happen was a new Nicolas Cage movie has been released, direct to video. He hasn't had a lot of movies in theaters recently, but the, the latest one is this movie called The Runner, and we'll probably, we'll get to it, it'll be released, the podcast and the review will be released in January, so we're nowhere <laughs> near uh, when that's going to come out. But we figure by the time Cage Club is over, it'll go up from 73 to probably 75, I think. Mm. He's got a couple more movies slated to come out this year. Cage Club is ever-growing. Right. Even when it's over, it'll never be over, because we'll just be coming back to review the new movies. Today's movie is Time to Kill, like Mike said, from 1989. There's not a lot of trivia, there's not a lot of information out about this movie online, from what I could find. Mm. But everybody involved in this movie is very, very Italian. Yeah. The directors, the actor, the writer, uh, scored by Ennio Morricone who did the, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, all the classic Western scores. It's, it's sort of unclear, and I'm sure we, if we do some real deep digging, we could find out. But as we sort of covered on the Vampire's Kiss episode, Nicolas Cage went way, way, way over the top of Vampire's Kiss. Might have um, scared Hollywood away a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then that's why the next movie was never on Tuesday, this bit part. Like Mike said last time, might have just been going for whatever work he could find. And then this movie, it seems like he basically went to Italy to make a new movie, really sort of demonstrated again that, hey, I'm a really good actor, even though I made maybe a bad choice in going with Vampire's Kiss and the the acting choices I made in that movie, you shouldn't forget about me. Yeah, I kind of feel like Vampire's Kiss wasn't exactly a mainstream success and uh like you said you know i think uh, hollywood got a little got a little scared of you know nicholas cage you know directors might have saw that performance and worried about working with him but uh just seems like maybe you're right he just wanted to get back to the roots back to whatever just pure acting which you know this this role is you know he's really he's doing a good job i don't i don't think he's the problem with the movie you know the film itself yeah i wondered if that was it maybe was he going going for something more where he wanted to get into like the festival circuit or something so he tried to his hand at a foreign film market well, yeah late late 80s was definitely an interesting period and as we got to next episode he's sort of fully like you know brought back into american culture by david lynch and wild at heart but we'll cover that next time today we're here to talk about time to kill and right off the bat the, there's a couple cage connections right in the premise this movie takes place in ethiopia in 1936, follows around an Italian troop during World War II. So it's the same time period, a little bit earlier, but the same time period, the same war as Racing with the Moon. One thing that's sort of a little bit of a cage connection, the character's real driving force at the start of this movie is that he's got a toothache that he, he needs to get taken care of by a dentist. Yeah. And it just made me think of Birdie when he, the actor, Nicolas Cage, had two teeth removed to get into character for that role sort of a cage connection, but it's sort of character to actor. Teeth and dentistry play a, big, a large part in uh, Cage's early career, I guess. Yeah, and in Peggy Sue Got Married, he has that great 
uh, monologue in the basement of Peggy's house at night where he says, you know, he's got the, the teeth, he's got yeah. the car, you know, so <laughs> it's been a reoccurring theme with, with his characters. He plays a man named Enrico Silvestri. He's a first lieutenant in an Italian army. Watching this movie made me think of an alternate timeline where Nicolas Cage was Indiana Jones because he sort of looks a little bit in this movie and like the rugged look like Harrison Ford a little yeah. bit. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark era. I mean, it's a couple years after the Indiana Jones movies, or at least after Raiders, but I just would have loved to see Nicolas Cage as Indiana Jones. And so for a while in the beginning of this movie, that's sort of all I could think about. Yeah, unfortunately, until we get to National Treasure, this is about as close to Indiana Jones as his character's going to get. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, now that you mention it, you know, definitely uh, I see that, you know, like uh, just t- the time he spends in the jungle, in the caves, you know, and yep. uh, all over the land, and later on how he has to go into hiding. Yeah, I, c- I could see the parallels there. And he's got that, like, really heavy 5 o'clock shadow. Like, he mm-hmm. just sort of resembles Harrison Ford of the era. Yeah, he, like we usually say, he he very easily falls into place with the look of whatever time he's supposed to be in, you know? So yeah. he looks like he's from this time, like very much like they made Harrison Ford look in Indiana Jones, just that rugged sort of explorer. And him being in the army, it, it fits his character too. So Cage plays another tortured soul in this movie. <laughs> um, he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he does a very bad thing and then deals with the repercussions throughout the movie. Like, I thought at first that he was, like, an evil character, and he hasn't really been, like, you know, an evil character yet. He's always been a good guy, but this, he sort of... I mean, I guess in Vampire's Kiss... So, what I'm alluding at, and what I'm sort of beating around the bush, is that the movie's main original conflict is that on his way to find a dentist, he comes across an Ethiopian woman bathing in a lake, and he rapes her. It's the second movie in a row... Actually, not the second movie in a row, sorry. I forgot about the delight that is never on Tuesday. <laughs> um, but it's the second, like, starring role for Cage in a row where he rapes someone. And, like, it's a real sort of dark period in his career. Yeah, and it's a turn for this film I was not expecting whatsoever. <laughs> you know, uh, like you say, like, up until this point, there's there's nothing to indicate, like, his character has any kind of malicious intent. Like, he's he's just got this really bad toothache that's sort of driving him nuts. Um, but, you know, he reaches the construction site where they're building a bridge, which, you know, I got to assume is a real bridge being built and they got very lucky to film in that location. Sure, yeah, probably. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he gets, like, the pain pills. Right, so he's sort of like popping pain pills and like wandering around the woods, and then that's when he comes across the woman. And I was not expecting him to just like force himself upon her. It's sort of weird, and what's also kind of weird is that they're in Ethiopia, and apparently everyone in the entire area speaks English except for this woman. Like all, <laughs> like it seems like her father, you know, the other people in her village, even the little kids who are probably you know eight or ten. Everybody speaks English except for her, and he has a really difficult time. All he's trying to do is find this one lake. He's looking for a dentist, and he, he, he sort of gets a little bit off track, and he comes across a group of people. Are they affiliated with the Italians, that guy that he gets a direction from? I don't believe so. I think what happened was the, the doctor or the medic was called away from their military camp to that okay. construction site. I think when he shows up there, he had missed the doctor or something. The right. dentist was yeah, getting yeah. back. So they sort of miss each other. Um, yeah, I think that's just 
that's just something, some construction going on in the country, in the region. But I, I also think it is, I think because the Italians are invading Ethiopia, so it looks like it's an Italian group doing this construction. So it's sort of like they've come in, they're building this bridge, and they're taking over. There's this guy that he talks to, and he's saying, I need to find this dentist. I don't think it's necessarily the case. Maybe it's just, you know, a red herring. But it seems like this guy that he tries to get directions from seems like he's leading him down like the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Like, did you get that sense that he was just sort of like, he gave him the right directions, I guess? Yeah, it was weird. It, it's like when he noticed Nick Cage was like in uniform, he was like, hey, uh, I, got, I got like a shortcut for you, you know? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you know, just, just go down this path and like come to a lake and then you'll find the road and you'll be back at the barracks. Cage is just like, oh, thanks, man. Like, that's awesome of you. And the guy kind of like gives him like a leer, like looks at him like really strange and just like wishes him luck in a very odd way that I wasn't sure what was going on. I was like, at first I thought, he was trying to trick him but then i was like that road will really lead back to the barracks but it's a dangerous shortcut uh it's very ambiguous it never really pays off i don't think i mean eventually later in the movie you find out that that guy that he got directions from was killed it never comes back to it he he eventually finds the road it's almost like and this is this doesn't make any sense within the context of the movie but it's almost like that guy knew that he would come across this Ethiopian woman mm-hmm. and sort of send him down this spiral of whatever. And that's why he directed Cage that way. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, that doesn't add up. <laughs> so maybe it was just like a weird acting choice that got left in the movie that he's this genuinely helpful construction worker who just the way that he looks and reacts and everything makes it seem like he's up to no good. Well, it's kind of it kind of plays in a little bit later, and, a, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm just pulling at strings, but just the way that Cage just totally accepts what this guy has to say, you know, like totally doesn't even question that he's lying to him. Yeah. Uh, like later on, Nick Cage will sort of get into a situation where he gets into this idea into his head. It's like the first thing that comes to his mind and he like sticks with it, you know? So there is sort of, I don't know if I'm reaching for something, but there's just something it says about his character in a way where he's just very sort of, he'll just believe you or like... Like gullible? Yeah, almost like gullible. Yeah. I th- that might be what they're trying to get across. I don't know. It's, it's strange. The path that this guy sent him on before he actually encounters the Ethiopian woman has the weirdest and my favorite moment of the movie. Nick Cage is just smoking a cigarette walking through the jungle, comes across a lizard, then puts the cigarette in the lizard's mouth and the lizard just walks away. <laughs> Again, like, it's just sort of strange. I don't know if it was a little bit of lighthearted humor to set you up for the devastating rape in the next scene. I don't know what the purpose of that was. But I just sort of loved the little smoking, walking lizard. Yeah, the, the first thing I thought of was uh, I was getting flash forwards to Bad Lieutenant. Uh, he like, yeah. inexplicably sees like lizards everywhere. Uh, then I was like, um, I was like, maybe it was just like an improv thing. Maybe he just like was the only thing he was told was to walk down this path. And he like picked up the lizard and was like, you know, let's do something with this lizard. Okay, what do you want to do? Well, if I put we're in the middle of nowhere with no one looking over our shoulder, and there's no animal rights people, you know, within hundreds of miles, like, <laughs> let's like have him smoke our cigarette. I don't know. It was very surreal. I almost wondered, like, is this a scene out of Wild at Heart? Is this like David Lynch guest directing a moment here? I don't know, but what you said about the the bad lieutenant thing is definitely true, sort of of his character for a lot of this movie, that he he has this power 
as a soldier and just uses that power and his influence mm. to control the people and situations around him. I think that's why, I mean, in, at least mentally, like he's like, I'm a soldier. This woman clearly wants to have sex with me. And even though she doesn't, he still goes through with it because he's like, oh, no, I, I know best. Like, this is this is my right as a soldier or something. Yeah, it feels like that prima nocta type mentality where it's like I have the right because we're the invading country or, you know, this is just, you know, the way he was trained, perhaps. I mean, these guys are fascists. They are taking over this country. They do sort of have this, I know, I deserve whatever I want attitude. You know, the rest of the people, you know, the major in charge of this guy is a monster, right? You know, like later on, we come to find out like the people like he is surrounded by are not like the nicest people to begin with, like in relation to them, he actually comes across as a pretty good guy. And that's sort of what I, I got to learn as the movie went on, is that when he rapes this woman, I think he's the most evil man alive, but then it just, he seems like a pretty good guy, especially like you were saying, in comparison to the people around him, he just did a really, really bad thing. What's weirder sort of than that description is that after he rapes this woman, they sort of fall in love? Yeah. What is that like? That was very strange. Like, she really is, like, into him. And, like, he even says, like, he gives her the watch and is like, I felt like we were married now or something. Or They're into each other. It's really, really weird. And they, like, pretty much the next scene after he rapes her, they have, like, a little picnic. Like, it's <laughs> such a quick turnaround. I don't understand the motivation. I don't know if that's... Because this was, again, just like Birdie. This was adapted from a novel. Mm. And maybe there's stuff that they just cut out, Mm -hmm. that they had this sort of complicated relationship that became something a little bit more. But in the movie, it's so quick to go from horrible act of violence and aggression to all of a sudden, they're just like a couple, basically. (laughs) Living out like this fantasy out in the jungle of like being a married couple and like he even he he is a married guy like he's trying to get back to his wife in italy and all this kind of stuff so for him to be doing this is even more bizarre and it makes even less sense i i don't know he's like going native you know that's the only thing i could think of but even that really isn't set up it's just it's very much like turn on a dime but their little romance leads to a, a sort of funny moment where he's just looking for this, like, so she's bathing in this little sort of pond-ish thing, and he's looking for the lake that the guy, the, <laughs> the construction guy gave him directions to go find, mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm looking for the lake, the lake, you know, the lake. And she does not understand, because she does not speak English, and so he pulls out, like, a little notebook and draws a circle, and then draws, like, a little squiggly line. He's like, the lake! And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't look like a lake at all. And then he draws a crocodile? Yeah. <laughs> And she freaks out. She knows exactly she, what that is. She knows exactly what it is. She does not like it at all. And he calms her down, and they go to the lake. She brings him like directly to where this crocodile is. Like that's like his house, <laughs> and they're there. Instead of continuing on his adventure, continuing on to get the dentist, they sort of have like a little honeymoon kind of thing. Yeah. In a cave. They take refuge for the night in a cave. It's like a beautiful cave, too. It's like really colorful, very, very well lit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they, what I understand is they have sex again. Like they just, yeah. they do it again. Like they're totally like in love in the middle of the night. Uh, 
he's like he's woken up by like strange noises in the middle of the night and what does he see what what is there's like one or two hyenas hyenas okay i wasn't sure it was hard to see but then and they're at the they're, they're at like the mouth of the cave and they're just howling and being intimidating and he pulls out his gun and he just shoots at them. Even though he's a soldier, I guess he has terrible, terrible aim because he does not hit them. He scares them away, but one of the bullets ricochets off the cave and hits his new, I guess, girlfriend, however you want to call her, <laughs> in the stomach. And she dies overnight. Yeah, well, at that point, we think that, that she dies from that, right? We kind of find out later. There's a little more to the story, but... Uh, yeah, he he comes back to camp, and he like, before we see this, it's sort of told in a semi flashback. And early on, he's asking his friend how long it takes to die of a bullet shot to the gut, and you're just kind of like, "What is he talking about?" And then you find out that yeah, this girl is he accidentally shoots her in the stomach, uh, and she's going to bleed out from that, and then there brand new life is over just like that. The first like forty five minutes of the movie are him talking to his major, like his superior officer, and asking him questions like before we see what happens, it sort of feels a little bit like a religious confessional. Like he atones for all of his sins to his major, and his major's basically just like, nah, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. the guy's like, dude, uh, just keep it between us and no one will ever find out. You know, it was a nobody, it never happened. Like, you're the only one that, that was even there, you know? So the next big thing that we come across is that the construction site where that guy gave him the directions, has been overrun by rebels? Or I guess just by the Ethiopian warlord or whoever was in the area, whoever was there before the Italians came in and took over. It showed that pretty much everybody that Nicolas Cage has come in contact with in this movie has been killed. Oh, yeah, I didn't really put that together. That's, that's sort of, that's very telling <laughs> for what he's about to go through, what he thinks he's about to be going through. But yeah, I guess that, I guess that is, that was Rebels. Yeah, okay. I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. It was a lot of confusion. I think, you know, it was meant to be a confusing sort of moment because uh, they also find like a mass grave and those weren't people that were working on the construction site. I don't know. And then they sort of go deeper into the woods and there's even more dead bodies and like hanged people and death everywhere. It's just crazy. It's a couple movies recently that where death has just been around, like death is just in the air. And even when people aren't dying, and we're going to get to it a little bit later, Mike just sort of hinted at it. That Nicolas Cage is, like, fearful of death, that he's fearful of succumbing to an illness and sort of having his life irrevocably changed. It's just death everywhere, in all forms, in all fronts, sort of throughout the movie. He's, he also, we should mention, has cut his hand along his journey, right? He was sort of tripped at one point, trucking through the woods, and got, like, a gash on his right, yeah. on one of his, uh, one of his hands. I think it's, like, the top of his right hand. Which, again hand, uh, hand and injured hands. He had been missing a hand in Moonstruck, so the hand comes up again. But uh, he, at this point, sort of uh, starts noticing it not looking too great, and, you know, he doesn't really... Put that, he doesn't really chalk that up to anything else at this point, but I think we're we're sort of drawn back to the attention of uh, this injury he has and to sort of keep an eye on that. Something might be going on there. It's at this point in the movie, right, where he's sort of overwhelmed by everything that's going on. You know, all these people have been killed around him. He just raped this woman. They fell in love. She died. And he requests a furlough. Like, he just wants to go back to Italy, and he, he requests a furlough, and it gets approved. And he starts drinking and dancing and celebrating. That's what they're doing in the middle of the movie, right? Like, they're sort of celebrating because his furlough came in, right? 
Yeah, he, he gets his tooth pulled, too, right? <laughs> he finally yeah. gets his tooth pulled, which I didn't think was going to happen until the end of the movie. But, like, yeah, he gets that taken care of, and then he gets the furlough, and then, yeah, they get, like, wasted. Him and his lieutenant buddy are just, like, getting trashed on the base. And this is really the only line in the movie that I have written down that's really sort of the cage that we've come to know and love. And this little boy comes up, or, like, this little group of kids actually comes up, and they're all like, good morning, good morning, good evening, good, good morning, good evening. Like, they don't really know. I think they're just, they don't really know English. They just sort of know phrases. Mm-hmm. And he looks at them, he's just like, hey, kids, what is it? Is it good morning or good evening? <laughs> just like a, a little bit drunk, a little bit cagey. Yeah. Good morning, good evening. Well, which one is it? Good morning or good evening? Just like a one-off line. But then right away, we're sort of snapped back into reality. Oh, yeah. Is this, uh, so the major, is this when he catches them drinking? And Yeah. Yeah, so like, he catches them drinking and like he's just super pissed. <laughs> like tells them to like come with him back to his office and i'm thinking like okay you could kiss that furlough goodbye he's screwed up apparently like all this liquor is contraband and they shouldn't be fucking around like this and uh they he like gets him back to the office and he's totally messing with them he offers them like really great stuff to drink and like <laughs> to hang out with him and like girls and women <laughs> he's like yeah you guys are, are all right you should hang with me. But that's when Cage learns that the women you're not supposed to interact with are the ones wearing the white turbans, which his girlfriend from earlier in the movie was wearing, because the white turbans in this village signify that the person has leprosy. This begins his descent into darkness in this movie, where he just freaks out, and like the hand wound comes back into play, and he thinks that he is a leper now, and he's going to be left behind. Ooh, left behind. Coming, Ooh. coming in a couple months. But, um, <laughs> but this, to me, was so crazy because I, I did not see this coming at all. You know, I mean, it's written on the wall, like, Ethiopia in this time. I'm sure if I had just known about, you know, what was going on at the time in history, paid attention in class. Right. But uh, I did not see the whole leprosy angle coming. But uh, I really love how sort of casually it's introduced into this film because... The major is walking with Cage and his lieutenant friend down the street, and he's like, yeah, let's get some women. And one of the guys goes over there, and he comes running back, and he's like, you ass? He's like, they're lepers. And he's like, I don't want to catch leprosy. And that's when Cage was like, oh, my gosh, like the girl that I was with, like she might have leprosy, and I got this cut on my hand. And it's like I might have leprosy, and that's when it real, like what I call the real movie starts. <laughs> you know, it's almost like Vampire's Kiss, the sequel. He just loses his mind for the rest of the movie, just, just dwelling on the fact that he might have leprosy. Yeah, the first half of the movie, he's obsessed with getting his tooth fixed. And then pretty much as soon as his tooth gets fixed, he now has his hand issue to worry about and this whole body issue that he's like never at 100% in this movie. And he starts freaking out and he doesn't know what to do and he sort of goes into information gathering mode. And he goes to a doctor, I think? Some kind of medic doctor. It wasn't the dentist. I know that much. It was like a different... No, it was somebody... It was someone that knew to the movie and someone who didn't know Cage. He goes there under the guise that he's a novelist and that he's writing a book about a soldier in Ethiopia at the time. <laughs> it's like the it's like the classic like uh, this isn't for me, but this is for my friend. Yeah. But I have a question for you. I wrote that and down. Oldest excuse in the book. <laughs> and he says, so like, there's a soldier in my book, you know, in Ethiopia, uh, and he sleeps with a woman and she has leprosy, and like, what would happen then? And the guy says, leprosy doesn't show symptoms or signs for, like, 10 or 15 years? Like, there's a real long 
Dude, it's hilarious. He's like, he goes, uh, and I'm not joking. He's like, he goes, you, you, you might not see signs for 10 to 20 years, or you could see signs in 10 to 20 days. And I'm just going like, what? I think it depends on like, if you've got any open wounds or any sores or things like that, you know, so like if Cage hadn't cut his hand, I think because he already has an injury, like the leprosy would attack that and then like hit his immune system a lot harder and faster. He's, he's talking to the doctor and he's trying to get a little bit more information about and the doctor like right away figures out that this is about Cage and he's like, hey does this soldier have like a, a woman back home in Italy? And he's like, yeah he's got a wife. And the doctor's like, oh man like he goes to like get his tools to, to take a look at Cage or something and Cage like gets up and like shoots at the guy and then just runs out of there. Cage is like looking at the book, right? The doctor's got like the book open. And there's a picture of a hand with a gash on it, exactly like Nick Cage's. Yeah. So that's, I think, Nick Cage starts to like freak out. And the doctor like looks away for a minute. And I think Cage is like, I'm going to assassinate this doctor because he's on to me. <laughs> he's like totally yeah, figured out. He, and he's he, a loose end. Yeah. And he, and he said something like, oh, you're on furlough. Like you're going to have to go get like checked out or whatever like that. I'll have to like write you a pass. Something like that. And Nick Cage is like, this guy has to go or else I'm going to get turned in. Like, And he misses. <laughs> he just like takes a shot at him and misses. And the guy turns From not around. that far away. No, he's like real close. He's like right next to him. But he must, it must be his bad hand that, you know, his shooting hand is the one that's injured. So I'm, that's what I'm saying. I guess that's why we can chalk up his, uh, his misfire in the cave to the, the injured hand as well. Oh, yeah, perhaps. Or maybe he's just a terrible shot. That could be. Maybe he just doesn't, he's not used to shooting. And he's got like a lot of power, but he hasn't really seen any action. So it could be why. He's such like he freaks out so bad at the first sign, first sign that like anything's ever wrong with him. And so after he freaks out and runs away, he really only has one goal on his mind at this point, and it's just to get home back to Italy. Yeah, he goes to the boat and he's there like super early. He's like there three hours before they're going to disembark, and they like kick him off the boat because he doesn't have his papers stamped right. He's got to go through inspection, right. and there's like a really long line at the inspection stand, and like at this point, like he might consider himself sort of missing in a way, right? Like, I think he's got this idea that, like, because he's on the run, that the army thinks that he's sort of AWOL at this point. I don't know. That's kind of the impression I got, that he thinks he's being searched for, but no one's looking for him at all. And so he's so freaked out, and he's so, like you were saying earlier, he's sort of the same kind of madness a little bit as in Vampire's Kiss, that he has this completely different perception of the world around him from what it actually is. But doesn't he, like, miss the boat? Yeah, he, he ends up not going on the boat and trying to arrange, like, a stowaway situation with some of the natives, right? He goes to, like, the little cafe, and they're like, you want something to eat? And he's like, no, no, I, I got to get out of the country, like, illegally. But the, he needs, like, 30,000 lira, and so, like, that plan is just, like, out of the question. But, yeah, he definitely misses his boat. But then his he meets up with the major again, and the major says that he will help Cage get out of the country. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's when Cage realizes, like, no one's been looking for him. Like, no one even <laughs> knew he was missing. Like, no one, like, they all just assumed that he was on furlough already. And the Major's, like, really happy because, like, everyone else is sort of gone. And, like, he, he likes having Cage around. And uh, he brings him to a brothel, right? Like, do they go to a brothel yeah. or something? And Cage, like, he's like, oh, I don't think I should be having sex right now. I, I might have leprosy. <laughs> but this all happens, like, really fast. Like, there's not that much left in the movie. He's just trying to get home. And they're just, like, they're sort of having, like, little wacky misadventures, you know, as the movie winds down, and all Cage, like we were saying earlier, all Cage wants to do is just go home. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with this. He just wants to get on a boat, 
wherever that boat is and get back to Italy. Yeah, him and the Major run into like some rebels and then he like steals the money from the Major, like the 30000 and takes off. So oh. he steals the money and he empties the Major's gun. Yes. Uh, and so then eventually toward the end of the movie, you find out that the rebels came and killed the Major, and the Major wasn't able to defend himself because Cage had emptied his gun. He gets the money to escape, but at the same time, so he's able to get away from the Major, he, he empties the gun, and it's because of Cage that the, the Major ultimately dies. But it's weird how the Major is just like, go ahead, leave, like, get out of here. <laughs> like, and they go, like, they do. They just, like, go their separate ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of strange. And then Cage just kind of goes into full-on, like, I'm a leper now, like, I should just, like, find a leper colony. He's in the, I'm delaying the inevitable mode, right? Like, it's just, I believe right now he's about to accept the fact that this is what's up. And he's sort of, like, just walking around the area and comes back to his girlfriend's village, and it seems like the only survivor, or at least the only person there, is her father. And he starts talking to this man, and he quickly learns out that the girl was not sick, that he does not have leprosy, she did not have leprosy, and it sort of, it relieves him of all of this stress and all of this burden that he's been carrying for the last half hour or so of the movie. Yeah, he, he kind of wanders into the little village area and doesn't even know it, but like collapses in her hut. Like it was her hut, he finds out, that he sort of was drawn to and collapsed inside. And I actually thought it was like a leper colony or something that he had found. But he wakes up the next day and yeah, the old man is the dad and, and he sort of does the confession right no i i i want to stay with you i i want to stay where you stay you don't don't ever leave me again Johannes. i'm sick to the soul because mario had don't you don't you understand i'm sick and then he's like i accidentally sh- you know i was shooting at the animals and it ricocheted to her stomach and then he says that instead of letting her bleed out to death he mercy kills her and he blows her brains out for her and yeah tells the dad and then takes the dad to her grave yeah because he's so relieved by the fact that his life is not ruined that he can go back to italy and be with his wife again it's like another sort of religious confessional right like he was confessing to the major for the first half like it's the second time that he's confessed to his sins and this time he actually sort of atones for it in a weird way that it gives her father a little bit of closure that this is where she is you know i buried her in a crevice he like put her in between a rock formation and then closed it up with like other rocks so nothing could get to her and so he brings the father there so that he can actually recover the body and give her a proper burial and give him closure on his daughter's life yeah and i think it also proved that his character like really cared for her also right that he was truly in deep grief over her death and it wasn't just that he was scared that he might have caught something, you know? I mean, there is, like, that sort of pandemic aspect to this, you know? I was thinking outbreak for a moment. Like, if Cage gets on that boat and back to Italy, it's going to be, like, the end of Italy. Everyone is going to be a leper. Yeah. It wasn't just that. Like, he was more grief-stricken for her death, I felt, than, like, this whole leprosy was just like icing on top of the cake there's like this strange abruptness again to the end of this film it's just abrupt like he finds out that she wasn't sick and he's just like oh and then there's like a shot of the girl's father like putting the the ointment on his hand so you know like he's definitely not got leprosy right and then the film goes into like black and white 
and a voiceover from another <laughs> character and everything just gets like wrapped up in a minute and it's also fast and confusing. <laughs> you know? All I could think of was like, here we go again. Like the ends to his movies are just, they just get strange. Yeah, he's just like the movie, the end of the movie is he gets on a boat just presumably on his way back to Italy. Yeah. You find out that the major died, and that's sort of it. Like, that's just, like, the end of the movie. Yeah, and he's, and like, it's all sort of... happy and really healed, and he's, like, laughing, and he's like, oh, thank God that's over with. I mean, it's just strange. It cuts, it's, it sort of seems to cut back and forth between the movie and what seems to be kind of documentary footage of Ethiopia at the time. Yeah, they sort of did a bit of that in the very opening, too, over the opening credits, where it looks like they were showing actual photographs from the era like that this movie was supposed to take place in like actual villagers from this from where they are from where the movie takes place so yeah I got the sense that they were sort of bookending this with this is the real deal like you know this is like this story didn't actually happen but the you know these events didn't play out but this kind of stuff is what went on you know in Ethiopia around this time and it just like you were saying it's just another really weird ending like we've put you know an hour and 40 minutes of our lives into this movie and then all of a sudden it's just over Sort of without, like, real, like, resolution. I guess the resolution is just that he's not sick. But he, his character almost, like, doesn't learn a lesson in this movie. Yeah, like, I thought the whole lesson was going to be, you know, uh, he, he, went a, he went off the beaten path. He went down a... He took a shortcut, and, you know, that's never a good thing, right? In literature, you never want to take a shortcut because it always causes more problems than it's worth. Right. So I definitely felt like, you know, he was going to die of leprosy because of this shortcut he took and because of this choice that he made to, to rape this villager along the way. But the movie really subverts all, the, all of my expectations, you know? It, it really takes the opposite direction, he doesn't die, you know, he falls in love with this woman, like, the shortcut doesn't exactly turn out to be a long-standing horrible thing in his life, like, at the end, right. he's, he's very much over the situation. <laughs> he, does, he does, like, a bad thing, has someone fall in love with him because of it, doesn't really get punished, has no real long-standing repercussions. Maybe, I mean, and this could be reading into it a little bit more, like, like too much, like we've been doing with a couple of other movies, but maybe it's like an indictment of soldier behavior yeah. of the time, that they were these uncontrolled monsters who could get away with anything, and just, if, if all else failed, they could just hop a boat back to Italy and never think about these people again. That's pretty good <laughs> that you got that out of here. I was, I was sort of going along those lines, too, uh, somewhat. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with the movie? Uh, just, just again for the ending and... In- its obscurity is the voiceover is from like his lieutenant friend who hasn't really been in the movie at all at least to the point where he deserves to have the closing voiceover right so that was just again uh, more fuel to the fire of confusion maybe along your point about how like the soldiers can kind of do whatever they want like perhaps this is just an artistic italian flair where they're doing this guy should get in trouble for his actions but he doesn't you know what i'm saying it's like this is all the things that should happen to a guy like this in a movie don't and that might be the point i don't know any other loose ends that we didn't tie up i think that about covers everything up i don't think he ever goes this obscure again but i'm not positive it's just we'll, we'll find out i guess yeah has, uh, i'm not aware of him ever doing another foreign film but time will tell yeah, we're, we're sort of entering the part in his career where he goes back to hollywood and there's a couple rom-coms coming up. There's a couple... I mean, we're not too far away from him winning an Academy Award for Best Actor. And then right after that, he transitions into one of the biggest action stars of the, the late 90s. I mean, yeah. we're this is like the tail end of kind of Obscure Cage. And we're really getting into the heart of 
his like best like most exciting movies. Yeah, he's got like a couple comedies coming up in a row too. So he's really just gonna switch gears, uh, do some comedy, do some action, get back to drama, win an Academy Award. <laughs> I mean, we got a lot ahead of us. But yeah, this was definitely the weirdest and most obscure, or the last example of weirdest and most obscure that he's gonna do. I sort of really want to emphasize, and we can maybe go out on this, how dark this movie is like i mean we talked about like what happens in it you know people are getting killed he's raping a woman he accidentally kills her he mercy kills her yeah the leprosy but, like the, the leprosy the tone like... like it's so heavy and dark and messed up it's really not like a comfortable movie to watch like this is sort of the most unsettling of any movie that we've had so far in cage club by far yeah there's no levity you know like the the lightest moment is when he makes the lizard smoke a cigarette <laughs> you know what i mean like that is the and i don't even know if that <laughs> what was going on there but like vampire's kiss you know like we mentioned there was sort of like a wink and a nod throughout that film his previous stuff you know birdie was very was um it had some comedic moments but there were character moments you know and it was more of a straight drama this got this got dark. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. This is just like those one of those strange foreign films um, that's very, very weird. This movie, I don't think, is really readily available to find anywhere. Mike bought some Greek import DVD of this. I got some what seems sort of like a bootleg version where, like, uh, when it goes from one chapter to the next on the DVD, it, it sort of, like, hesitates. Like, it's a real weird mm. pressing list DVD. So this is not really readily available to find. I think that this is, like, a really, really great Cage performance, but I don't think this is a movie that you necessarily have to really go out of your way there's like there's other stuff that he's, that's coming up soon that's more easily accessible that he you can sort of get a sense of what he's doing in this one and just not have to hunt as much or pay as much for this movie yeah i feel like you could see what he's doing in this movie and if in films like birdie or racing with the moon he's delivering that same sort of level and yeah i don't think he's what fails this film i think the film has its own problems you know uh, as far as just you know other other factors involved you know i don't know and my copy feels like a vhs transfer almost or like a video <laughs> transfer but yeah everything does feel very homemade <laughs> to a degree i'm just glad that we got a copy somehow. Yeah, because as far as I could tell, this movie never made it to made its way to American theaters. Mm. I don't know if it was ever really released on U.S. DVD, or if it was, it was maybe like a single run. It's very obscure. Like, Birdie's obscure in a sense, but Birdie's also, like, widely available for not too much money on DVD. Mm. This is one that, like... You're not going to come across unless you go looking for it. Yeah, you can't rent this on YouTube for two ninety nine like no. Larson could when he watched Birdie. Next episode, we have a David Lynch double feature, because in 1990, the year after this movie came out, he starred with Laura Dern in Wild at Heart, which is another one of my 25 favorite movies of all time, and probably my second favorite behind Raising Arizona, or maybe even my favorite Nick Cage movie. Wow. This is... It's great. Wow. And along with that, the same year, Lynch directed Cage in a 50-minute short called Industrial Symphony No. 1. So the good news is that Industrial Symphony No. 1 is in its entirety on YouTube. The bad news is that our guest for next episode really had an impossible time finding Wild at Heart. Like, it's just... It's not available to stream anywhere on the internet legally, but I really, truly do feel that anybody who loves movies 
should go seek out a physical, a hard copy of this movie because it's tremendous. Wow, well, I look forward to watching it for the first time. Which is crazy to me. Yeah, I don't know how I've... I'm a big Lynch fan as well as a Nicolas Cage fan, and I thought I had seen just about everything. The other night I watched another... David Lynch movie I had never seen, so I'm catching up, and uh, <laughs> we'll do Lynch Club after, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. It'll be a lot shorter, but it'll be a lot weirder. For Cage Club, that's Mike Banzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski. Head to cageclub.me to find all of our reviews, to find all of the information about the podcast, all sorts of good stuff. You can find out how to follow us on Twitter, how to subscribe on iTunes, everything you want and more, even things you don't want, <laughs> at cageclub.me. 